Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from pioneers about eating disorders uh, and research that they conducted uh, from the people who were part of building the modern day foundation of our field. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I am host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. And I'm pleased to be working with multiple eating disorder communities and organizations on this series. Our goal with this series is to capture the narrative history of our field and hear from those who were there in the beginning about their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, ideas that never quite get represented in this way in the standard academic publications. We hope that it will provide a continuity from generation to generation for professionals working in the field of eating disorders and provide insights and guidance that will inspire new and next generations of researchers in the work that we need to advance science and discovery. I have had the good fortune of training with and being mentored by many of the experts who are joining us for this series, including today's guest, Dr. Stuart Agris. Dr. Agris obtained his doctoral degree from University College, London, England in 1955, and completed his residency and fellowship in psychiatry at McGill University in Canada in 1961. We'll hear how he got from, uh, from England to Canada to the United States, where beginning in 1973, he has been a member of the faculty at the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine. In 1974, Dr. Agris began one of the first programs in behavioral medicine in the United States, and it's a program that continues today at Stanford University. Much of Dr. Agris's work has centered on the study of behavior change in areas such as treatment compliance, uh, essential hypertension, and other cardiovascular risk factors, anxiety disorders, and eating disorders. For the past several decades, he's been a leading figure in the field with the majority of his work focused on eating disorders across epidemiology, basic psychological mechanisms, and treatment. Dr. Agris has been the editor of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and the Annals of Behavioral Medicine and has served on a large number of other editorial boards as well. He's presently Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine and continues his research program in eating disorders. But to begin, uh, I want to say welcome, Dr. Agris. We're thrilled to have you and want to ask you just to start sort of at the beginning with how you decided to go into medicine and then into psychiatry. Well, going into medicine, um, I, I spent a, a summer with a general practitioner, sort of working, following him when I was about to, was it about 15 or 16? Wow. And um, that, I think, sort of cemented my interest in medicine in general. Uh -huh. So um, let's see, I applied to medical school, must have been in 1946 and was accepted and then had to do so two years of military service. 
Uh-huh. Given that I was accepted in medical school, they put me in the medical corps. And actually, I worked in a path lab. Huh. It was just great. Uh-huh. Uh, but did not become a pathologist. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. So, um, but in medical school, it was just um, obvious that psychiatry really didn't have much in the way of treatments. Uh, there right. was electroshock therapy, there was deep insulin therapy, and that was about it. And, of course, locking people up. Right. Um, the other side of it. Yeah. So how does it how did it start? Where did you begin psychiatry and how did you get from England to Canada right. and then to the US? Yeah. Well, it was uh, let's see um 1956 and mm-hmm. first off there were no structured psychiatric training programs in the UK at huh. that point. And there was a tremendous migration of physicians out of the country because of the sh- there were very few academic jobs available. Uh, I mean, you must remember that England post-war was a pretty sorry sight in many ways. Rationing was going on, new jobs were not being formed and so on. So uh, I decided to look abroad, found the program at McGill, which had a set up program for training in psychiatry, got accepted there, got a fellowship there, and um, off I went across the Atlantic. So you you take the boat across the big pond, right, and you get to McGill, and uh, McGill has a training program in psychiatry. What was the environment like there, and, and who was leading that? Oh, right, yes. Well, you and Cameron... Mm-hmm. He's the uh, chair of psychiatry. Uh, he uh, actually lived in New, New York State, up in New uh-huh. York State, and commuted every day in his Rolls Royce. <laughs> old chairman of psychiatry. That's uh, great. I don't know how many chairs of psychiatry have <laughs> Rolls Royces, but that's quite a story. <laughs> right. and, and it was a big program. There were four, four hospitals involved, a very big faculty. Uh, and I was at the Montreal General Hospital, which had just been built, and it had an inpatient unit, daycare unit, and outpatient units all in one section of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So it was a very sort of modern view. Mm-hmm. And in my first year there, along came the first antidepressants, and along came right. the first antipsychotics. So... When you were there, what were the patients you were, who were the patients you were seeing or the research that you got started with that began to give shape to your career? Right. Well, um, let's see, as well as uh, adult psychiatry, I actually took two years in child psychiatry as Mm -hmm. well. So my very first paper Mm -hmm. was in uh, school phobia in children. Uh, very little had been written about it. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And um, interestingly, uh, I got a very nice letter from Hilda Book, huh. who kind of congratulated me on the very nice work and hoped I would continue to do it. How fabulous. What right. a connection, right? Right, exactly. But more than that, 
because it was so new, uh, there was an enormous amount of publication. Newspapers, magazines picked it up. It, it was a terrible bit of research. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, but it hit, hit the times. It was a new, mm -hmm. new But it speaks to where the field was at the moment, at, at that moment in history, that a paper you wrote about school avoidance or school phobia was something that Hilda Brook would be reading, right. uh, be able to comment to you, and that yeah. it would get picked up in the public press. It really, it was a different world in terms of what was available and the the thirst for research and building a knowledge base around these disorders that were impacting um, individuals and in this case, kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're at McGill. Uh, your first paper is focused on kids and school avoidance. Uh, how did you get to eating disorders? <laughs> oh, right. And how many stops are there in between? <laughs> right, not right away. So what was the right. next stop along the journey? When I was in London, we were more frightened sometimes of the Irish people blowing up stations and so on than the Germans. Mm -hmm. When I got to Montreal, it was the French separatists that were blowing up things. Mm -hmm. And, and it, the reason some, there was even some talk of moving McGill to Toronto. Huh. So it was a quite serious problem. So I thought I shouldn't probably be staying in Canada, or at least in, certainly not in Quebec. Um, and as it happened, Tom Bogue, um, who was a faculty member at McGill, uh, invited me to go down with him to Vermont uh, to open up the first department of psychiatry that that medical school had. Wow. So kids, it shows you just how primitive we've been. In fact, they have been told, of course, by the inspectors that they must open the Department of Psychiatry. Before that, it had been sort of in medicine. Mm -hmm. But I think then came the great changing point, uh, completely accidental. Mm -hmm. uh, and yours written about accidental encounters. Right. And Harold Leidenberg and I came to Vermont at exactly the same time. Leidenberg was, uh, had been in the operant conditioning department at um, a really quite famous one, was a pure operant conditioner. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do, apply operant conditioning to clinical work. And I wanted to get some experience with uh, operant conditioning, certainly mm -hmm. the application of psychiatry. Um, at the same time, Wolpe had published his first book mm -hmm. um, on reciprocal inhibition. Mm -hmm. so I went down to see him, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it took, we had a very nice time. It turned out my wife has a distant cousin relationship with Wolpe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, what I saw was that he did less reciprocal inhibition and more direct approaches to the phobic object with his patients. Mm -hmm. I and mean, that just sort of stuck in my mind. Anyway, back in Vermont, we then applied operant conditioning, 
reinforcement theory to a whole lot of cases, mm-hmm. including anorexia. Mm-hmm. We did single case work on that, showing the way we could deal with that, including agoraphobia. I mean, it was quite striking to me. What we were really doing was making symptoms come and go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By reinforcement, changing the reinforcement contingencies. Mm-hmm. In the end, we actually owned half the beds in the clinical research center, had trained the nurses in operant conditioning, how to, when to attend to things, when not to attend to things, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, made what seemed to be delusions go away, um, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, it was a terrific training, uh, and I became an operant conditioner. So really the beginning stages of behavioral therapies and interventions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Were these done uh, as case series? Were, this was clinical work that you were uh, adjusting uh, based on it was, clinical observation? It was pure research. It was um, single case controlled studies mm-hmm. with the baselines, introducing something, observing the behavior directly, taking mm-hmm. something away and seeing if the behavior would get worse and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in many cases, we ran studies on a single patient for two or three months, mm-hmm. introducing various things and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. In a day when treatments had took more time, right? Or patients were inpatients for much longer stays than they are today. We had 30 day stays. But of course, in the clinical research center, that was funded by the government. Uh Uh-huh. So stays there were free. Uh Uh-huh. Right. How did your thinking evolve in a way that then moved you specifically to um, eating disorders and concentrating on eating disorders. This was a really critical moment in the establishing the foundation of the field with work that was coming out by um, Hilda Brook and Gerald Russell and colleagues that we were beginning to more fully recognize, see and recognize right. these patterns of eating disturbance. What did that look like for you? The stage. Mm-hmm. So my first work was all in um, phobia, uh-huh. agoraphobia, which was you know, it's an important issue. Um, mm-hmm. And indeed, we got, I think, the first clinical grant from NIMH while I was in Vermont. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. And so with uh, with David Barlow, you probably know that name, Uh Um, we went to Mississippi and opened up this department. It was broken down department. Uh, The dean was a super guy who'd been a researcher at Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. And basically he gave me a carte blanche to reorganize the department, which I did. We recruited, Mm -hmm. what, 20 or so young faculty. Mm -hmm. We had psychology doing clinical work Mm -hmm. and uh, with no difference between psychologists and psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. People visiting would not know which were which. Mm -hmm. Eventually, of course, uh, I ran foul of the uh, 
uh, whatever one might call the, well, I ran foul of the legislature, I ran foul of the <laughs> church. How did you, how did you get yourself into trouble with the legislature? Well, uh, <laughs> I got myself into a bit of trouble with the Catholic Church. Because they had got federal money to build a mental health center, which was the first floor of a big hospital they now were building. Uh-huh. Uh, but they said, of course, that they would be accepting students for training uh, from, from the medical school. But when I went off to see Sister Superior, uh, who ran the place, She's a charming woman, um, but she said, um, yes, of course you can bring medical students over here, as long as they're not black. Uh-huh. Um, and we had a bit of a fight about it, but um, obviously we couldn't go further. And that disturbance went to the legislature. They tapped my phone. I had people coming in with guns. And a bomb went off. And, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, I'm really struck, Stuart, by your observation uh, in England, it's post-war, and how the, the social climate of the day had profound impact on what it meant to be studying medicine. Mm -hmm. In McGill, the social issues and the political change and unrest same in Mississippi. I think it's really a, a an important take home for all of us to remember that when we work in our science, our science sits in this larger society and the larger issues of the world are part of the story. And um, maybe we can come back around to that at the end as you think about mm -hmm. some of the issues that we face today. Right. So you get to Stanford, it's 1973, right? Uh, there, is that right? 1973. And I'm wondering if you can, there's so much that you've done um, during your uh, decades of a career that if you can take us on a little bit of a journey and to uh, the, the big idea that mm -hmm. you want to focus on, we could talk about many big ideas that you were part of uh, defining and discovering and elaborating, but our idea with these conversations is to really dig into one big idea that kept coming home for you as central to the work uh, and the work that you grew uh, and developed around eating disorders. Right. I wonder if you can share with us that journey and that idea. What is that idea for you? Those really back to medical school days um, when I saw the paucity of treatment and so my big idea has been to make treatment better. Mm -hmm. Just that. <laughs> it's that straightforward. Right. So, so your big idea is our mission is to make treatment better. Right. And how do you do that? Well, um, from the very beginning, of course, I understood the way in which the environment shapes things. Mm -hmm. But um, so, given the opera and background that I had, but um, I think what well, I, I got a bit tired of agoraphobia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one gets a sort of stage in research where one feels one's done everything that one can do, 
mm-hmm. it was a lot better, uh, and it needed to go to the next phase, and I didn't really want to do that. And at the same time, when I got to Stanford, along began we began to see more and more eating disorders of different kinds mm-hmm. in the clinic. And so that's when I switched over to eating disorders over the next few years. I think Chris Fairburn's 1981 paper of 10 patients treated with cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. really was one of the major influences. And we, we, we got in touch with him. We began to do cognitive behavioral therapy. And um, from then on, we had a long collaboration. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And actually, that's how I met you as well, right? It was a collaboration between Stanford and Columbia. That's right. With Chris Fairburn as a, a consulting colleague from Oxford doing quality control uh, for a major clinical trial right. on uh, bulimia nervosa. Right. And on behavioral therapy. Yeah. And Terry Wilson, of course. And Terry Wilson, of course, uh, right, right, right. So Chris and Terry were with you out at the Center for the right. uh, the Center for the Study of Applied Behavior. Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. There right. we go. Thank oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and with your in that year, I think you all cooked up this study and and engaged uh, Tim Walsh to to join you. That's right. Right. Needed, we realized we needed two sites. Yeah. We might as well have a big one like New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey. So these were that those were early days in clinical trials of eating disorders. I believe I that it, I think it might have been the first multi-site trial in eating disorders. I believe that's right. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember giving a talk. I I, I think a bit before that, where I showed the number of subjects in trials of eating disorders and drew a line at 100, which was where we ought to be. Mm-hmm. But they're all in the 20s and 40s, all my research too. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so now we could have, so now with this, we could have a decent sample. That's right. So that trial was a comparison of cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal psychotherapy. Right. And uh, uh, and I had the good fortune of coming on, having just completed my PhD as a clinical psychologist, grateful to people like you who were champions of clinical psychologists um, joining in the practice of uh, treatment delivery mm-hmm. and uh, worked, uh, I was based at the Columbia site, but uh, enjoyed the collaboration with Stanford and our various visits back and forth um, from our site visits. The, the, one of the things that I remember well from that time was the way in which the, everyone on that trial engaged with that trial was really thinking, right? We were early on and people Mm -hmm. were really trying to lean into this idea of what, what is it about these treatments that work and how do we uh, not only look at sort of who finishes first or who finishes best, mm-hmm. but what are the active mechanisms of the active ingredients of the treatment uh, interventions? And it takes me back to 
the the theme that you've come back around to multiple times as uh, your big idea in wanting to make treatments better, uh, being uh, very uh, specifically focused on this study of behavior change. Right. Right. And so I wonder as if you can talk some more about that and what you've learned along the way, how do we really measure behavior change and what do you think matters most in measuring behavior change and how does that inform making treatments better? The very best way to do it is to observe behavior. Mm -hmm. And the problem with eating disorders is it's secretive. It makes observation, at least in those days, it made observation, direct observation of what was going on impossible. So we had to stick with Mm -hmm. self-report. I think we forget sometimes that self-report is a step down from where perhaps we ought to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll stick with that. But yes, you're right. I was, we were all at that point very interested in how, how therapies worked. Mm-hmm. Um, we luckily had Helena Kramer mm-hmm. as our biostatistician. Mm-hmm. So she taught the three of us uh, um, how to analyze things in terms of moderators and mediators. We've had a number of trials that uh, you and I were able to collaborate on. You continued other studies. We at Columbia continued studies, uh, multiple other centers and uh, colleagues have done excellent work in this area. And we have better treatments, right? But we're not at a hundred percent. So what, uh, as you think about this commitment that you've had through decades of work and, and studies and engagement with uh, individuals who have a range of eating disorders and wanting to continue to get these treatments better, uh, what have you found most satisfying and what have you found most frustrating in what we're able to do today? Right. Well, satisfying, of course, is that people do get better treatment. Mm-hmm. That is satisfying. And frustrating, I think, is we bump up against the ceiling in almost all our treatments. Um, very few get more than 50% of people better. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course, maybe 20% above that gets sort of better. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I think we've been stuck there for 15 years Mm -hmm. um, and have not made any progress. I mean, all kinds of things, new treatments, different emphases and so on have been tried, but none of them are better than cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And none of them get better results than cognitive behavioral therapy. There's, Uh, an aspect of what I'm hearing from you as you talk about improving treatment of being very thoughtful about where you need to be very specific or where you need to be very focused. And I wonder uh, with the frustration of this impasse, right? Feeling like, okay, the last 15 years or so, we've been tinkering at the edges, uh, tweaking things, but I wonder from your perspective, you you talk about 
uh, getting into this world of innovation and research around improving treatments, coming at it from a very different angle from what existed, right? You brought behavioral principles to a the bastion of psychoanalysis and psychodynamic psychotherapy of the time. Right. And that coming in from the, the side, so to speak, was um, energized a field. Right. When you look back on the course of your career, Stuart, I wonder if you could share with us uh, when in the course of your career you came to know, you came to realize that you were an expert in this field. <laughs> I hate to... <laughs> How little an expert knows. <laughs> uh -huh. Maybe yeah. that's what defines an expert, is knowing how little you know. Right. I, I think that's a pretty good definition. Uh -huh. um, I would say one thing. Um, I do think a clinical researcher has to be a good clinician mm -hmm. and has to keep on seeing patients mm -hmm. while the research is going on. I think the more one becomes divorced, as, as I have become really in my last years of the career, from clinical work, the less one appreciates the complexity of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I've become to think about diversity. That diversity is an enormous human principle. Without it, we would not be here. Mm -hmm. That's right. So is that other 50% diverse in some particular way. Mm -hmm. I don't able to find out what particular way it is yet, but I, I think we have to think about diversity and think about how you then articulate treatments to a diverse population. Mm -hmm. Pretty tall order. Right. But, um, <laughs> and, and quite beyond our capacity at the present time. Stuart, as you look forward, and imagine the next decade of work in the field of eating disorders. I wonder if you could share with those who are early in their careers, the new generation, the next generations of researchers, uh, something that you wish you knew early in your career that might be something you could share with them as they shape their career. Probably staying in eating disorders, right? Yeah. Yes, I, I would um, say that the present path we're on with cognitive behavioral therapy or other therapies is not likely to lead anywhere mm -hmm. um, in terms of bettering the therapy. And I think we have become a little bit like the school of psychodynamic therapy. Mm -hmm. I think we've become more adherent, more rigid in terms of our approaches. So, uh, not a good word, rigid, but something like that. Um, so I would ask them to think about other things. Mm -hmm. To have a very open mind, seize upon a question that they're really interested in and follow it up. Mm -hmm. Keep an open mind. Keep an open mind. Right. The reality of a research career today means that there's a 
there's a certain path of research funding that builds incrementally and in some ways becomes very conservative, Mm -hmm. right? And what you described in your career was being able to come at something from a very different angle. Mm. That's a high risk idea from a funding body, like a National Institute of Mental Health Mm. perspective. So what are the ways that we, even as a field, can can do what you've described, can recognize that we need to, if we really want to advance our treatment, our treatments and, and enhance our impact, we need to come at this work by bringing in something really different rather than tweaking the, the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we do that in a, yeah, in so a, as a field? Fall back. So, so many of us were very lucky uh-huh. <laughs> in that, you know, we, we, we came along. We, I suppose we were open-minded and receptive to a new thing and mm-hmm. saw that the old thing was getting, was stuck. Mm-hmm. Dynamic therapy wasn't very scientific, didn't prove that their treatments worked and so on and so forth. Um, well, we're not like that. But I think we've got stuck in our, if I may say, relative goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, but we were very lucky. I mean, so mm-hmm. we got, as I say, we got one of the first grants for behavior therapy, and NIMH was open enough for that to occur. Mm-hmm. There couldn't have been many behavior therapists on the committee. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. So right. at least they were open-minded enough for that. And I mm-hmm. think if you do come up with a good idea, and unfortunately now with some preliminary work, this, this I mean, I think the career line, career line is now terribly difficult. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, you know, it depends on having a good mentor, it depends on being in a place where they can get funding, all those things. So what I'm hearing from you is that if we really want to improve our treatments beyond where we are today, we're going to need the next generation and uh, subsequent generations of researchers and clinical researchers to uh, straddle uh, this tension of being very open-minded and uh, really looking out and around to discover and engage with new ideas uh, and then bring them in in a very specific way to the world of eating disorders so that we can measure and document uh, and hopefully add a different ingredient to the intervention so that we can push that outcome uh, and, and impact uh, in a positive way, more people's lives. Agreed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, I want to invite you for one last comment or um, reflection as you look back over your career. A uh, particular success, a particular aspect of the uh, years that you've been at this that that um, 
that's gratifying for you as you consider how far we've come, recognizing there's more to do, but you've been part of building our field and really moving our field forward in such a major way. A piece of that's that's especially gratifying for you. Oh, I, I always go back to my very earliest work in operant conditioning. Uh-huh. Well, I saw under my own eyes we could actually make symptoms go away and come back, mm-hmm. depending on the environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. That was the most gratifying and educative thing that occurred to me, I think. Mm-hmm. So I always go back to Harold Leitenberg and my collaboration with him it was really starting me on the career. Mm-hmm. And of course, for publications, my very first publication getting so much attention, it kept me going. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, right? It, it uh, as you say that the the this formative experience shaped so much of what you did for years thereafter. Thinking about how does this principle that you witnessed with your own eyes, the yes. the potential of this intervention, how do I, how do I use this for good? Right. And you have done that in so many ways and impacted so many people's lives uh, mm-hmm. for the better, not only the individuals with eating disorders whose lives are improved as a result of your work, but also so many students and mentees, myself included. So thank you very much, Stuart, for your work and for joining us today. Thanks, been very enjoyable.